Welcome to the Shema Podcast, the podcast for the perplexed, where Torah insights intertwine through personal stories as well as interviews with leading Torah scholars demonstrate the empowering qualities of Torah and mitzvot. For more great Torah learning through Torch, the Torah Outreach Center of Houston, go to torchweb.org. Now to the show. I am so delighted. I am here today with my beloved rabbi, the one who took me from being a complete ignoramus, what, six or seven years ago? Something like that, yeah. To being just somewhat of an ignoramus now. But that was a, that's been a long trek. Welcome, Rabbi Yokoff Wolby. Could you just begin by telling everyone a little bit about yourself, your amazing podcast, and, and everything you do to help out the Jewish people through the Torch organization? Well, thank you so much, Dan, for hosting me here in your lovely home, in your lovely studio. It's such an honor to be on your podcast. I like that you uh, introduce yourself as someone who is trying to become less of an enigramist. I guess that's another thing we have in common. I've also been trying uh, somewhat uh, futilely to try to weaken or to lessen my degree of ignorance uh, for the past 34 years. And you know what? The more Torah you study, the more you realize you don't know. And therefore, it's a work in progress. Uh, but I am fortunate to be the director of outreach for Torch, the Torah Outreach Research Center of Houston. And part of the things that I focus on is to try to think of new, creative, innovative ways to reach out, to teach Torah to our Jewish brethren all over the world. And you asked me about the podcast. Since 2012, we started doing podcasting. And that was before it was big. The thought process was, hey, I'm giving classes anyhow. I have an audience, a live brick and mortar audience. I'll just bring my phone. I'll record it from my phone. And I'll upload it to a podcast and maybe my parents will listen to it. And that was the way I began the podcast. And over the course of the ensuing years, it became somewhat popular and in 2016, I opened up different channels. We had the, the flagship channel, the This Jewish Life, then we did a Jewish history channel, then we did a Parsha podcast channel. And thank God each one of them developed their own global audience. And it's been an absolute boon for our outreach efforts to find new audiences of people that are very interested in studying Torah. And it's more of a, a medium that's conducive you know, to modern audiences, just like today, you can't go to Blockbuster anymore. Apparently, there's still one more Blockbuster store left. But the idea of brick and mortar entertainment and being limited, being pigeonholed to a specific time, come to the Torch Center at 7.30 for a class, that is more the old model. And we want to take Torch and Torah teaching and Jewish outreach and Jewish education to the 21st century to the modern economy where people can consume things on their own, on demand, on their phones, at their schedule, at their pace. I got uh, emails from people who tell me that they listen to my podcast at two times speed. And ironically, those people who listen to at two times speed have a harder time engaging in normal conversation because like the rabbi is speaking and I wish it was a podcast. I could listen to it faster. It feels like he's speaking backwards and reverse. But anyhow, that was the idea, and it's been tremendously successful, and I'm very grateful for the audience and for our organization, Torch, that was willing to experiment and to try new things, and great, it's great to have an audience all over the world, and it's great to be able to disseminate Torah 
using this medium, using these uh, platforms. That's great. You know, when you first started teaching to us six or seven years ago at the class out at the shul out here in Humble, Texas, you still have that Northeastern Israeli sort of pace to your dialect. So then I would listen to it at half times the speed. So you sound like a Texan, but now you sort of already have that more of a Texan tempo. Try to slow things down. Yeah, that's great. So one of the things I, I thought what we would do today is I wanted to challenge you. I want to challenge you on everything you believe, Rabbi. And I will warn you before you decide to accept this challenge is that I spent the first 40 years of my life, or probably more specifically, I spent the first 35 years of my life as an atheist, 35 to 40 as an agnostic before I began to, to study Taurus. So I have been studying the logical arguments, the frameworks for skepticism, atheism, everything. So are you, uh, you willing to... Let's do it. Okay. But before I begin, I actually, I do have a couple of serious questions because as you mentioned, we're in this home right now and this home is up for sale and God willing, after having your presence here, they'll elevate it and, and then God will facilitate me finding a new owner for this home and I'll be able to be able to move into the community, which is our goal. So some questions that have come up that I wanted to ask you, and I figured I might as well do it because there may be other people that are not in a community and may be considering moving a community and may have these questions as well. So my first question is, on Shabbos in the community, is there a certain, is there certain times during the day or certain places, locales, where we meet to look out at the streets, look for Jews driving and throw rocks at their cars? Or is this something we just do independently of one another? Oh my gosh. <laughs> well, actually, if you want to do it properly, you make sure you designate your rocks ahead of time because you don't want to have just ordinary projectiles. <laughs> you, you have to sharpen them and you have to uh, designate them ahead of time uh, just to make sure that you're, uh, you're on target and you have the right sort of rocks. But no, in all seriousness, I have never seen this in my life where people throw rocks at cars on Shabbat. I'm sure it has happened once. But even if it has happened, the idea of someone desecrating the Shabbat, i.e. lifting stones and chucking right. them at cars, to smash cars on Shabbat just to dissuade others <laughs> against desecrating the Shabbat, to me, sounds uh, counterproductive. To throw stones, no, that doesn't exist. It's fiction, and it would not be permitted to desecrate the Shabbat in order to make someone else even less likely to observe the Shabbat. Because one, destroying someone's property. Two, you're picking up a, a, a rock, which is forbidden to do, correct? It's Well, that's why they say the joke, you have to designate it yeah. a shop ahead of time. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> that's why they would try to avoid that. That's the, that's the joke. But no, I've never seen it before. Maybe it's happened. But again, this is, these things are not sanctioned. These things are not good. And you cannot judge Torah Judaism using the people that violate it. Right. So you can't, you can't use them as the, bar, as the barometer. It's like saying, hey, you know, if there's this Orthodox rabbi who's eating pork and Yom Kippur, like, why is that okay? Well, maybe he's not the best representative of the community, right? Right, exactly. And just like, just like I wouldn't say, hey, uh, Bernie Madoff, he was a non-observant Jew. Mm, justify that, right? right? So ergo, all non-observant Jews <laughs> must be. embezzled billions that, of dollars. That must be where he picked it up, right? <laughs> <laughs> So that would, that would not be a, a, f- a fair comparison. So yeah. So the question is like this. Does the Torah and does the Halacha tell us to throw rocks at cars on Shabbat? And the answer is, of course, no. And that's the standards that, standards that we should be judged by, I think. 
I agree. I always heard that though. It didn't make any sense where that would come from, why anyone who was passionate about seeing a Jew observe Shabbos would destroy their property and break Shabbos themselves in order to do so. Okay, so next question. I've also seen and noticed that Torah observant men never shake the hand of a woman unless it's their wife. Is that because they're sexist or because they think the other women may have cooties? Uh, This is going to be a fun interview. So like this, the Torah tells us that there are prohibitions against relationships with women that are not our wives or our daughters or our mothers or our sisters. And there is an actual verse in the Torah that says, do not come close, do not have a rapport with the women that you're not allowed to be with. The question is, what does that include? So the Talmud tells us that includes anything, any affection, any affectionate closeness. And the question is, what constitutes affectionate close encounters? One of the major debates is, does giving someone a nice warm handshake, is that a violation of this Torah principle? You may say, hey, a handshake, well, that's just a cordial formality. Because you meet people, you give them handshakes, it happens all the time, and it's not any degree of closeness. Well, what about giving someone two pecks, two kisses on each cheek? Is that closeness? So we would say as Americans, that sounds very, very close. That sounds very, very affectionate. Well, you go to other societies, like in Europe, some places, South Africa, some places, that that's just standard. You meet someone at a business meeting, you don't just give them a handshake, you give them two little pecks on, the, on each cheek. Right. So the question is, you know, what constitutes a formality and what constitutes a, an encounter of closeness? That would be a violation of the Torah principle. And that's why it may be subject to cultural and, you know, the lo- normals of the locale, is that considered closeness or not? Are you allowed to sit on a bus or a train next to a woman that's not your spouse if invariably going to be touching? Interesting question. So that was actually discussed in the Halakha Responsa about more than 100 years ago. And the, the rabbi who authored the Responsa, he said, well, that is definitely not any affectionate touching. Even though there is touching, it's not affectionate, not a problem. I know some people that would still not sit next to women, but okay. But then we, we see a certain guidelines that certain things are a problem, certain things are not a problem. And the question is, you know, where does handshaking fall in? And generally speaking, my principle, my policy that I got from my teachers was that you don't extend your hand to shake a woman's hand, but if a woman extends her hand to shake yours... You don't embarrass her by leaving her hanging and trying to explain it in some sort of way. You just shake it quickly and move on with it. Okay. But to my knowledge, there's no cooties and there's no, um, the allegations of sexism in Torah are baseless. All right. Fantastic. Thank you so much for clearing that up. All right. So now we will move forward with our duel. And I want to begin like this, Rabbi Wolby. Rabbi, you have always been brought up as a Jew in the Jewish faith. That's all you've ever known. And you have to accept that there's so many religions out there. I've met so many people from all these different religious faiths. And isn't that the key word? Their faiths. Everyone has their faith, their beliefs without any evidence. And there's no reason for one person to say, my faith is right, your faith is wrong. One of the things, Rabbi, is you're probably the most intelligent person I've ever met. However, because I wasn't brought up in a community, I've developed a much more 
sophisticated, open-minded way of looking at the world. And I understand that we all have biases, especially confirmation bias, because our beliefs, our beliefs become our identity. And that confirmation bias is natural. It's where we only want to see the information that confirms our belief because it's our identity. That's why liberals watch MSNBC, conservatives watch Fox News, because if they were each to watch the other's news channel, they would literally have their brains explode. It's necessary to confirm your identity. Because of that confirmation bias, Rabbi, you have this mindset that you're right. Everyone else is wrong. The Christians, they're praying to an idol. That's idolatry. That's awful. God doesn't like that. And meanwhile, the Christians, with their confirmation bias and other biases, are saying, oh, well, the Jews, they don't accept JC. So they're going to hell. So you see how this, none of this is constructive for, for any of us. In my 20s, I actually considered going and joining a synagogue, even though I was agnostic. But I equally considered joining a church because I just understood they were social constructs, places for communities to get together and spend time with each other. And the only reason I did not do that is because I knew there was just simply a scheduling conflict. Because on Friday night when you were celebrating Shabbos, that was my night drinking with the boys. So it's just, I couldn't make it. Saturday night when you were doing Havdalah, again, I was pre-committed. That was my night to go out drinking with the boys. And on Sunday morning, when my Christian friends were going to church. Again, that's when I was recovering from going out and drinking with the boys. But see, here's another example, Rabbi. You have your custom that you were handed down to on how to bond with your friends, Shabbos. And I had mine. Friday night through Saturday night, hanging out with my friends. I had mine culture. It doesn't mean one's right and one's wrong. Everyone has their own truth, Rabbi. So my proposal is that, why don't we just accept that we all have biases? Let's get past that. And if we could do that, we could then all of us get past these biases and these these religious ideas and just hold hands with one another, come together. You know, the song Kubaya makes me want to throw up in my mouth, but I would get over that. I would get over that for the sake of humanity. And we would hold hands and we would sing Kumbaya. And I think somebody would have to have a, a tambourine. And then we would come together and we would then be able to solve the real problems facing mankind like climate change and the awful discrimination that transgenders people face every day for just wanting to use a public restroom. What say you, Rabbi? So there's a lot to unpack here. Uh, I, I do appreciate uh, that multi-layer and multi-dimensional question. But in all seriousness, I think you're asking a very good question or a series of questions. But I think there's a few assumptions that need to be parsed out before we analyze the subject. I think assumption number one is you're making in your argument is that religion is faith, son, evidence, or it's it's faith divorced from evidence. So I, I wouldn't agree with that contention because if you look at Jewish sources, Jewish literature, Jewish philosophy, there is a heavy emphasis on the fact that our religion is evidence-based. Our practices, our history, our, our heritage, our backstory, it's based upon evidence. That's point number one. Point number two, the fact that there's billions of people and to say that, that some of them are wrong... I think that's also a very valid and powerful point. Are religions mutually exclusive? 
Well, if you have the Muslims and they're saying X and you have a billion and a half of them and you have a billion and a half of the Christians and they're saying Y and X and Y cannot coexist, you either believe in Muhammad as the last prophet of God and believe the dicta of Islam or else your nation of sword would come in after you. You either believe in JC, etc., or else you're condemned to a life of, of torment and hell. Those two are mutually exclusive. I have good news for you, Dan. The truth is that if you accept the, the, the precepts of, of Torah and Judaism, there may be a way for everyone to be okay. So your utopian dream of making sure that everyone could come together, everyone could actually work together on the world's problems, we call that Mashiach. We call that Messiah. The idea of the world actually uniting behind one principle, one purpose, and everyone working together in a certain degree of harmony. We call the Mashiach. And in fact, what's really nice about this is that, according to the Ramam at least, the fact that the Muslims are adopting Islam and behaving in that way, and the fact that the Christians are doing Christianity and living that sort of lifestyle, it actually isn't that terrible. Because if you look at the backstory, look at the history, look where these people came from, they all came from idolaters, from pagans. And Islam definitely is not idolatry by Jewish standards. So they're okay because they're doing whatever it is that they want to do, provided that they're keeping the seven Noahide laws, which they are. And then you have the Christians, and that's a debate as to whether or not it is idolatry, and that's a, a separate discussion. But it's possible that they're actually not doing anything wrong, at least not for them. But they, they do, both of them just need slight adjustments. So the Ramam has a famous essay where he talks about the fact that Christianity and Islam, the two other, quote-unquote, major monotheistic religions, their beliefs are okay for them, and the fact that they're coming halfway, meaning us halfway, so to speak, by adopting monotheism or partial monotheism, the role of Messiah is to do that last mile, that last, the last little bit. That's his role. And to fix the whole world. So yes, I think that your utopian vision of the world coming together is indeed what we believe that is the, the destiny of mankind. And the role of Messiah is to strengthen our nation's foundation, but also slightly adjust and fix the mistakes of the rest of mankind. And you don't need to be Jewish to be good, we always say. You could be a righteous Gentile, a righteous Christian, a Muslim, and that's okay. So fortunately for the Christians and the Muslims, neither of them are right. Because if Christianity was right, then all the billion and a half Muslims are upper creek and vice versa. They're all upper creek, but you know what? Thank God for everyone. The Torah is correct. The Torah is 100% correct. The Torah is divine. And as a result of that, the Christians are okay. The Muslims are okay. There'll be slightly slight adjustments brought upon them by Messiah, but they're, they're, they're pretty close and they'll just be just, just, just some small finishing touches are needed. That's it. That's great, Rabbi. I, I now regret recording myself committing to singing Kumbaya, if that is the case. But... You're still approaching it from there's evidence that your text is right. They say their text is right. The Muslims say their the Quran is right. How do you know with such confidence that your text is right and theirs is wrong? Well, that's a difficult question to answer in one sitting. 
But I think maybe the, the simplest answer is, first of all, we don't need to talk about their texts. Because I don't need to disprove the text of other religions. Because once you know the Torah is true, then that's all you need to know. Because that already, in the Torah itself, it talks about how it, it's been the final word of God. And it's not swappable. You can't upgrade it. You can't have the new incarnation, the New Testament. You can, it, it can't be swapped out for a new and improved alternative. So you don't need to disprove their texts, even though those their texts are are riddled with errors and contradictions. And but as to how do we say that our text is true? So I would quibble with that classification. I wouldn't say that we say that our text is true because when you say text. I assume you're referring to the text of the Torah. Is that right? Yes. And if we're just evaluating texts, both of them, you know, maybe read like scripture, a little bit hard to read, and both of them are telling a story. And how could we, thousands of years later, evaluate the veracity of a given text? What I would say is you have to take the whole, the whole picture. What are we, what's the Jewish people? What is our claim? It's not that we have a better text than they do. When we say the word Torah, it's not a reference to a text. It's a reference to an entire corpus, entire body of knowledge that was given to us from God to us via Moses. And I would say just quite simply, the most basic evidence that we have of the divinity of the Torah is the fact that we had divine revelation. Now, I also want to stress one more point. We're making a pretty bold and audacious claim. We're claiming that every single word, every single letter of the Torah, the written Torah, is given to us directly by God via Moses. Moses is like the scribe. He's a stenographer. He's writing down what God, what God gave it to him. Moreover, the entire corpus of the oral Torah, which is the way to unpack, to understand the written Torah, also is divine. But we're so confident that we're right that we are willing to make the following proposal. We're willing to say, hey, why don't you find any holes in it? If it was man-made, if it's not divine, there should be some mistakes in it. And there hasn't been any any mistakes discovered hitherto. Even though there's a whole industry of people trying to find holes in the Torah. There hasn't been a single mistake. What do you mean by mistake? Any, Any mistake. Humans are prone to errors. Humans are fallible. God's not fallible. And therefore, we're claiming it's an the author is infallible. And the book is also infallible. And the predictions are all things that happened. Because, of course... Humans were fallible. We can't make predictions that are accurate. God is omnipotent, infallible, and consequently, his predictions all come true. Where are the things that the Torah says happened or will happen that were disproven? Where are the holes in the Torah? Where's the holes in the text? There aren't any. There haven't been any, any mistakes that were proven. So you're saying all the, the prophecy that was in the written Torah has occurred? Well, some of it has not yet occurred. But the things that it does predict that have occurred are very noteworthy given the fact that nowhere else do you find such predictions with such uncanny accuracy. Now, we're still living amidst history. So you say that it's only once Messiah comes and you know the rest of the prophecies are fulfilled, only then can you say we fulfilled. I mean, we're still alive. We're still living. We're still part of the story. But I will tell you, according to the Jewish tradition... We're in the year 5780 now, meaning that we have 220 years to the year 6000 on the Jewish calendar. We believe that all the predictions are going to come true before the year 6000. So you put this podcast in a time capsule, 
And in 220 years from now, we'll know the truth without any ambiguity. <laughs> then all the, all the prophecies will have happened. But, but to my earlier point, I do think that it's important to stress that the origin story of our nation and of the Torah and the miracles that have happened to our forebearers, to our ancestors, those are unparalleled by any other religion's backstory. We're claiming that God gave us Torah via Moses at Sinai over the course of 40 years as described in the Torah. That's what we're claiming. The claim itself is a pretty bold one. We're claiming that the entire nation experienced prophecy at Sinai and lived to tell a tale. We're talking about millions of people that experienced something at Sinai. And that was the founding event of our, of our religion. I challenge the people that question the legitimacy of Torah to explain to me how do you convince a nation comprised of millions of people, by the way, that are bigger skeptics than you ever were, Dan. <laughs> how do you convince them that they witnessed prophecy at Sinai if it didn't actually happen? Moreover, look at the Torah. This is Parsha, in fact. The Jewish nation, what did they eat for 40 years? They ate manna. Think of TV dinners being parachuted to your door. But we're talking about, you know, how many people are living amongst the nation at the time? Five million? So it's hard to know. We're told there's about 600,000 adult males from the age of 20 to 60. So we're definitely talking about a nation of millions of people. And they're given three meals a day out of manna for 40 years. So do the math. How much is three times a couple of million times 365 times 40? We're talking about billions and billions served. We're talking about it's just an, an incredible amount of manna being given to feed the nation. How do you convince a nation that they ate manna from heaven for 40 years, a nation of millions of people, if it didn't actually happen? You're right, because the written Torah was done after that entire episode. Well, but again, the written Torah, the Torah itself says it was written by Moses at the end of his life, given to the nation, when they're still eating manna, by the way. Right. So, so if they weren't eating manna, then they would be handing them a text saying, check out this great story about how you guys ate manna for the last 40 years, and everyone would be saying... Yes, and now give me 10% of your money for tithing. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's a good point. And so it's not just one isolated miracle. You know, how do you convince a nation that they witnessed God at Sinai? Well, maybe they're all were on hallucinogenic mushrooms. I've heard that before. Have you heard that one yeah, before? They're all on hallucinogenic mushrooms, and therefore they, were, they witnessed things that really didn't happen. And the splitting of the sea, how that happened? I don't know. There was a... Low tide. Low tide, exactly. There was the meteor that hit the Nile and turned it all red. Oh, okay. And it happened to be... Every, everything is coincidence, coincidence. Maybe. You tell me how you convince a nation that they ate manna. For 40 years, men, women, and children, nation of millions, that's what they ate if they didn't actually eat it. Tell me. And then I get the book that delivers this book to me that tells me these stories. If it didn't happen, I know for sure the book is a farce. The book is fraudulent. Maybe there's something to gain, though. They got everyone together and said, look, let's tell this story. The other nations will be frightened of us. So just go along with this, this storyline. By that logic, Abraham Lincoln didn't exist, right? Or George Washington never existed, right? By the same logic. Because again, how many people witnessed George Washington? Less people than eight men. So you're already bordering on the, on the insane to suggest that a nation of millions of people all got together to agree on something. Again, these are not very agreeable people. Just have you met any Jews? <laughs> they're not very agreeable people and they're not going to go for your farce. 
But to say that they all got together to make up the story, that's a very shaky grounds to be with because then any story can, you know, can be questioned the same way. It's a good point. And I would say that if anybody has ever observed a synagogue board <laughs> meeting, <laughs> they would quickly learn that there would be there's no way to get, you know, 20 Jews to agree on something much less 1 million. So I'll give I'll give that to you. What about the other areas of the Tanakh though that Jews claim is I don't know if they say it's divine or there's that they that they know it's it's verified. What's your what's your proof that there's any validity to that text? So first of all, who said that there has to be validity to that text? Our religion is based upon the Torah, the five books of Moses, the written Torah, the oral Torah as comprised by the Talmud, the Mishnah, and the other associated writings. The of the six hundred thirty mitzvos that are the bedrock of our religion, zero of them are found in the other books, the other 19 books of the Tanakh, of the Jewish scripture. So yes, you're right. There is a difference between our faith. Our faith hinges upon the Torah, not upon the rest of the Tanakh. So, so and in addition, the Talmud does tell us that, and the Torah itself tells us, that Moses is a prophet unmatched and unparalleled by any other. So yes, he was a higher prophet, a higher level prophet, and thus the Torah that he gave us was given to us via this higher level of prophecy. Josh was a great prophet. Samuel, King David, King Solomon, great prophets. But they pale in comparison to Moses. And therefore, the, what we get from them is, is nice. It's valuable. It's critical. It was delivered via prophecy. It is part of the collected corpus of, of Jewish, the Jewish canon, the Jewish literature. But there's no mitzvahs that are in there. They are reflecting back in the Torah. The content of the rest of the Tanakh, not including the Torah, it's all about encouraging, coaching, admonishing the people for their disobedience, for the non-obedience, for the non-adherence to the Torah. Says the Talmud. The Talmud tells us, had the Jewish people not sinned, our bookshelves would be much smaller. Why? Because we'd have just the five books of Moses and the book of Joshua. That's it. We wouldn't have Samuel, Kings, Judges, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah. None of those books would exist. It's only because we sinned that we have those books. What does that mean? It means that we don't need those books only because we sinned. And these are admonishments and rebukes that help bring us back on track. So yes, I would agree to your distinction between the five books of Moses that we got from Moses on that higher level of prophecy versus the rest of the books that dominate the Jewish bookshelf. So you're saying that the prophets are there just to help lend warning to the Jewish people to, to follow the Torah, but, you're, but you are also saying that the prophets, they were verified prophets. Absolutely. But it's a much lower level grade prophecy than what Moses had, and our religion relies on the Mosaic prophecy, none of the other prophecies. So we don't have the same barometer that we have for Mosaic prophecy for the rest of the prophecies of the Tanakh. Were King David and King Solomon, were they prophets? Yeah, of course. Solomon wrote the Proverbs. King Solomon wrote Song of Songs. King Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes. Okay. Uh, King Solomon is uh, one of the major personalities at the beginning of the Book of Kings. So he's a very important Jewish author and personality. King David, of course, wrote most of the Psalms. It's authored by King David. He's the major story. He's a major personality at the uh, in the book of Samuel. Very significant Jewish character. 
but he's not with Moses. Moses is the one who gives us Torah. The Torah is called the Torah of Moses, and he's the father of all the other prophets. All the other prophets only emanate from him, and he's on a different on a different plane. Okay. So something you should know, and that is that there's a, another group of people who totally agree with you. The Christians totally agree with everything you just said. And so what I'm going to do next, Rabbi, which I'm afraid is going to shake you to your core, is I have evidence that your Torah, prophets, the writings, have evidence that point that the Christians are right and that JC was the Messiah. Are you prepared for I pull this evidence out? Before you're going to feel a little discombobulate afterwards, I do want you to know that you and Hyatt are going to love Christmas time. The pine tree, <laughs> the smell, the lights in the house. You're going to have this new family tradition of telling your young kids about Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny. And when they're trusting you virgins by the age of eight or nine, then you'll tell them it was all a lie. You're going to love it. Here we go, Rabbi. So this is from, if you want to pull this up in your book there, this is Psalms twenty-two seventeen. Now I'm going to be reading from the King James Version, quoting the same Psalms from your Tanakh. And it says, For dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me, they pierced my hands and my feet. Clearly, Rabbi, a prophecy of J.C. being nailed to the cross. You serious? This is the best you got? I have more. <laughs> Why don't you give me your best, uh, the best bet? You want to tackle that one? No, I'm happy to talk about it, but I don't see anything. I didn't see any reference of JC. I read it. They enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. It's clearly a reference to JC. Maybe it's a reference to the other millions of Jews that were crucified. Why this one, per se? Well, I would say it's actually not, not, not a very accurate translation, actually. They, they surrounded me like dogs a pack of evil ones, and they surrounded me like a lion, my hands and my feet. Where does it say that they pierced him with nails? I don't, I don't see it at all. Because dogs have encircled me. Adas mireim. Adas mireim, which means a, adas means a congregation of, of bad people. Hakifuni, they went around me, they surround me. Ki'ari yadai Like lions, they attack my hands and feet. I think you meant to say pierced my hands and feet that's the translation i have so are you saying are you saying are you suggesting that the christians have tried to uh read their theology into uh into the text by manipulating the text is that what you're saying i'm not saying that maybe maybe you translate it as lion like a lion there at the hands of my feet and they translate it as pierced my hands and my feet isn't that possible that there's just some different ways in which Hebrew words are translated? Again, this is very weak because let's assume that it does say pierce my hands and feet. Let's assume it does say that. It doesn't say it. But let's assume that it did. So what? We don't accept the prospect, the proposal of God coming down in human form, even if it does say we pierced his hands and his feet. So again, we could quibble about the, about the translation. And you're right. It does say ka'ari, which means like a lion. And there is a long history of the Christians manipulating and rereading and rewriting, uh, you know, trying to do these mistranslations to enable their perspective to, to shine forth from the text. So this is another example. It says ke'ari, which means like lions. But even if it was true, it's the, the where does it say anything about JC? Where does it say anything about the whole idea 
of man coming down, of God coming down in human form. It's just okay. total fiction. That's my next one. Thank you for setting me up. Now I'm going to read from Isaiah 7:14. Now I'm actually going to be reading from uh, the quote from it from Matthew. Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. A virgin shall be with a child. Come on, Rabbi. You have to acquiesce to that argument from your very prophet who you just said that Isaiah is a verified prophet, and he just talked about a virgin child. This is the classic where they take the word Alma and reread it as virgin. Oh, this is great. So the word Alma just means a young girl. So it means, in fact, there's other examples in the Torah where the word Alma is clearly not referring to to a woman, uh, to a woman's virginity, rather to her age. So hmm. again, there, there is again no evidence here whatsoever as to any uh, virgin birth. But again, what I will tell you is this is another classic misdirection. Let's suppose it does talk about a virgin birth. Maybe it's someone else. Or, the Talmud even talks about this, the Talmud talks about a a woman who never had intercourse having a child because she was in a bath that had some steaming uh, semen in it and it kind of meandered into her body and she had a baby. That's what the Talmud talks about. There is this phenomenon. Maybe it's referring to that. But again, A, this is a mistranslation. The word Alma does not mean virgin. The word Alma means young girl or young woman. And B, even if it was referring to some sort of virgin birth, oh, immaculate conception. Let's say it did mean that. So what? Is there any evidence here to JC? Maybe it's a different woman, a different different uh, virgin birth. Okay. I'll accept that. It could have been a, a, a hot tub mishap. Hot like tub in, mishap, yeah. In the, okay. But I, I'll get you with this one. Because this comes directly from Leviticus. But let me ask you a question, Dan. Yeah. When you you began our conversation by telling us that you spent the first 40 years of your life as an agnostic? Yes. Was it doing this stuff? No, I'm just having fun with you right now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what else you got? From Leviticus 17.10, verse 17.10 to 17.11. And, the, and, it, and it quotes from Leviticus in, in Hebrews. and says, And almost all things are by the law purged with blood. And this is the quote from Leviticus. And without the shedding of blood, there is no atonement. This is a verse that's talking about the prohibition against consuming blood. Is that right? Yeah. And clearly it's showing that, that someone had to die for our sins because that's the only way for atonement. <laughs> oh, that's creative. <laughs> and a man from the house of Israel and from the converts who lives amongst them, who eats any blood, and I shall place my face in that soul who eats the blood, and I'll cut, cut him off from amongst his people. For the soul of the flesh of a person, of a being, is in the blood. And I gave it to you upon the altar uh, to atone for your souls. For the blood is in the soul and it shall provide atonement. So it's telling us that we cannot eat blood because we take the blood and throw it on, on the altar. Where is that, Where exactly is the mention of someone dying for our sins? Hmm. I don't see it. <laughs> All right, maybe not. And even if it did, if it did mention that, maybe it's someone else with that, for instance. Hmm? Did you ever consider that? I'm starting to regret pre-ordering that Christmas tree for you. (laughs) (laughs) And by the way, I will tell you that the Talmud talks about how when someone who's righteous dies, it does provide atonement for the rest of the nation. That's true. So maybe 
even if your mistranslation was correct, how is that at all a reference to JC? And and by the way, our nation has suffered a lot at the hands of the Christians due to the fact that we killed their God. Shouldn't they be sending us gifts? Because after all, he died for their sins. So indirectly, we caused their sins to be expiated. We should be getting presents. Exactly. Okay. You won that little challenge for sure. Okay. I will say in the church's defense, I think they put their Bible together like in the year 300 common error, and it was before the era of Google Translate. This one I, I, I will get you on. So correct me if I'm wrong from what you've taught me. What Moses brought down from Mount Sinai was all of Torah. The written Torah came 40 years later with the, the biblical, the narrative. What he was teaching in the tent of meeting, having that prophecy was Torah law. How to live as a society, a society that would mirror the heavenly realm. So we could create an actual dwelling place for God, correct? So we have these laws. Now, over time, it was necessary as we encounter new situations for the sages to extrapolate the law to apply to new situations. And God empowered them to do that because he wanted us to use our intellect and use the reason what we've learned from Torah to, to apply it to, towards every situation that we're going to encounter in this world. Is, is that right? Or did I leave yes, something yes, else? Yes. And so when the sages would make a decision that decision then became verified in the heavenly realm, correct? Yes. Because we had times like even just with the, the tracking time and laying out the calendar when they had watched the new moon and when Yom Kippur would begin. Yeah, what you're referring to is the fact that the Almighty is going to outsource some of the decisions to us. Correct. And even if we get them wrong, it's okay. Because we, we still have the ability to make those choices. Now, there was a point in time when the Jews became bifurcated in what is now the Ashkenazi Jews and what is now the Sephardic Jews. Refresh my memory on that time frame and what caused all that to happen. The easy way to remember this is for a thousand years, not only were the Jews suffering at the hands of the Christians, primarily also a little bit under the Muslims, but the Christians and the Muslims themselves were warring. And therefore the Jews that were living under Islamic rule didn't have much contact with the Jewish brethren living under Christian rule. That's a simple way to keep track of it. And thus, you have two concurrent communities that are all developing and adopting new customs and understanding Torah with their own slight, slight different bent to it, so to speak. And therefore, the customs that are going to be prevalent in one community are not going to be matched by those in other communities. And the Torah sages of, other, of, of one community doesn't have much contact with the rest of them. And therefore, there are going to be variations in practice and custom, in liturgy, amongst other places between those two communities. Yes. What about differences in halakha? Like the example of the Sephardic community ruled that rice permitted by the Sephardic and the Ashkenazi said it was prohibitive. So that's a great example of this phenomenon. So actually, the way you phrased it is the exact opposite of how it happened. Yes, it's true that in the Sephardic community, rice and other non-grain grains, shall we say, the Talmud tells us there's five actual grains, but then you have corn and, and rice that are these sub-grains, and therefore they cannot become chametz, they cannot become leavened bread on Pesach. So in the Sephardic community, it is, until this day, they eat it on Pesach, and the Ashkenazi community, they do not eat it on Pesach. 
But the reason for it is not because the Sephardic community permitted it. The reason why is precisely the opposite. It is permitted. It was permitted. And in about the 12th century, the Ashkenazi community adopted a new custom to prohibit it. And therefore, this is a great example of what happens when you have two Jewish communities existing concurrently and independently of each other, where one custom becomes prevalent in one community, it is not adopted in the other community, and therefore, based upon the laws of customs that are ubiquitous or universally accepted, they become mandatory. For an Ashkenaz Jew Jew living today, it is mandatory that they obey the custom of not eating kitneos on Pesach, not eating rice and corn. Whereas for Sephardic Jew, because their communities never accepted that custom, therefore they are not bound by it, and therefore there's nothing wrong with them eating rice or corn on Pesach. So biblically, there's nothing wrong with it. No, no one even claims that. Okay. No one even claims anything wrong with it. Biblically, it was a custom that was adopted by one community and not by the other community. In order to put a fence around the Torah, exactly. some people might mistakenly consider it yes. uh, as something else. But then that does become law. So now, for you and I, which have Ashkenazi descent, we can't have rice now Correct. on Pesach. Correct. Okay. Isn't it also true, Rabbi, that likewise... At one point in time, you had the Orthodox Jewry decide that Jewish descent only came through the mother's side. So that if a Jewish man had a baby with a non-Jewish woman, the baby is not Jewish. And you had people coming through Reform Judaism, and those rabbis decided that Jewish descent comes through both the father and the mother. So a Jewish man having a baby with a non-Jewish woman, the baby would still be Jewish. Likewise, they each decided on different paths for conversion. Just like Sephardic and the Ashkenazi are not wrong or right because one has rice and one doesn't have rice, the same thing holds. If you come from Orthodox Jewry, then you follow the laws decided by the Orthodox rabbis. If you come through Reform, then you follow those laws. It's not one being wrong, one being right. It's just Different truths for each side. Very clever setup and lots of classic misconceptions in your question. So first of all, like this, Sephardic Ashkenazic, okay, two communities existing independently of each other, but they are in agreement on the basic principles. Namely, both sides agree the Torah is divine. The written Torah, the oral Torah, both sides agree that the rulings of the Talmud are absolute and unchangeable. If I come as an Ashkenazi Halakhic authority in the 12th century, and I say, okay, I want to introduce a new custom, I am not conflicting with the ruling of the Talmud. I'm not invalidating the rule of the Talmud. I'm saying on top of the existing corpus of laws, based upon everything we've accepted until now, based upon the final conclusions of the Talmud, based upon the final rulings of the authority, I want to make something new. I want to add on to that er our own new custom of the kitneos. Other community doesn't accept it. It becomes mandatory for us, not for them. The question of the heritage of the child, the matrilineal, patrilineal descent, not only is that not an invention of the quote-unquote Orthodox rabbis versus the quote-unquote Reform rabbis, the bifurcation of Reform and Orthodox is about 200 years old. It's relatively new for, for, by Jewish standards. 
the origination of the concept of matrilineal descent, as it's called, even though that's a misnomer, as we'll see in a second, that originates not recent times, not even in ancient times. It actually originates in the Torah. The Talmud, the book of Yavamas, I believe it's page 23 or 24, I don't remember exactly offhand. The Talmud deduces it via a very simple reading of the text of the Torah. I believe it's in Deuteronomy, where it talks about your son, the son of your daughter, and the way it's read is that your grandson, who's born to you from your daughter, when she marries a non-Jew, is your son, meaning is part of the Jewish family. So, and this is discussed, it's explicit in the Talmud, the way the Talmud reads it. So this is not a question of various communities adopting different customs. This is a very different question. And the question is, do we accept the rulings of the Talmud as authoritative and binding and immutable? The Ramam tells us that just like the Torah tells us that the Sanhedrin has the jurisdiction to make rulings, that applies, the, the ruling of the Sanhedrin applies to the rulings of the Talmud. And therefore, when there's ruling in the Talmud, there is no Jewish community, Ashkenaz or Sephardic, that rejects the rulings of the Talmud. And all the differences between the Ashkenazic and Sephardic is only within those rigid confines of the ruling of the Talmud is absolute. And therefore, these are entirely, these are not uh, analogous at all. But once you mentioned it, I want to point out that the whole concept of matrilineal descent, as it's called, it's, it's a misnomer. And here's why. If someone is a Kohen and they have a child, the father's a Kohen, the mother's not. Is the child a Kohen or not? Both, both, both parents are Jewish. So no one doubts the child's Jewish. Is the child a Kohen or not? So if the father is a Kohen, the child's a Kohen. If the father is not a Kohen and the mother is a Kohen, the child is not a Kohen. So this idea that the Judaism comes from the mother, it seems to conflict with the principle that if you're a Kohen, your child's a Kohen, a male, that is a father's a Kohen, the child's a Kohen, the father's a Levi, the child's a Levi, the father's an Israelite, the child's an Israelite, yet somehow when the, there's a mixed marriage, those rules don't apply. What is the logic behind that? So I'll explain to you. In a normal marriage, normal by Torah standards, that is, the husband's Jewish, the wife's Jewish, everyone's Jewish, the Judaism comes from the father. Father's Jewish, child's Jewish. Father's a Kohen, child's a Kohen. That's the way it works normally. However, there are certain unions that are not recognized by the Torah. Why? Because the Torah does not recognize a union between a husband and a wife who are, who are not of the same religion. That is not the Torah. The, the Torah is not civil law. It's Torah law. And the Torah does not, does not recognize such unions. And therefore, if a woman comes to us and she has a child, we don't know who the father is, right? Right. But we can make certain assumptions. Talmud talks about this. We made certain assumptions. If the woman's married, we assume that the husband of that woman is the father. Is it possible the woman did adultery and some other man is, is the father? It is possible. But unless we have evidence to the contrary, we always assume that the father is the woman's husband. What dictated doing such? Great question. What dictated doing such is that otherwise the Torah, there's many laws of the Torah that would not be fulfillable. And the Talmud itself goes through this. You know, if, if, a, if, a, if a man smacks their father, causes a wound, says the Torah, it's a capital offense. Well, how do we know that this is really his father? How do we know that? Maybe his mother slept with some other man, and therefore this is not his father. Ergo, says the Talmud, if the Torah is punishing someone for hitting their father, it must mean that there is some sort of mechanism that we can use 
to determine paternity. Okay. And therefore, the, the, the way it's presented is chazaka. It's a, we, we can assume that when a woman is married and she has a child, her husband is a child's father. And therefore, if a woman's married, she has a child, that child smacks his mother's husband. Mm-hmm. We assume he's smacking his father, therefore he's guilty of capital punishment. Okay. However, what if a woman is not married and she has a child? Who's the father in that case? Well, the answer is we don't know. Because from the Torah's viewpoint, we see an unmarried woman. We know there must be a man to our earlier conversation. There must be a man there. Who's the sperm donor? We have no idea. How could we know? It could be any man in the world. It could be. Right. If she was married, well, then we have this assumption. If she's not married, then we don't have that assumption. The woman's not married. She has a child. All we know is that there is a father here. The identity of the father is something that we don't know. And therefore, if a woman is not married by the Torah's standards then she's not considered married by the Torah standards, standards and therefore all, the only parental unit that we have is the mother. And therefore, if the mother's Jewish, child's Jewish. Mother's not Jewish, child's not Jewish. That's the framework. That's the, that's, that's the technicalities of how that works. But again, this is all sourced. The Talmud talks about it explicitly at length, but it's sourced in Scripture in Deuteronomy. And therefore, it's not analogous to the question of Ashkenazic and Sephardic customs differing, those customs going in opposite directions or different directions, that is a function of post-Talmudic, post-Halachic customs that, that they want to adopt. You'll never have a Sephardic Ashkenazic custom that will conflict, that will run afoul with the Talmud or with the precedent that is the Halachic precedent up to that point. Maybe the, the logic that we explained is, is how it works on a technical level, but whenever the Torah gives categorical rulings, those rulings apply even when the assumed reason is not present. Okay. So you, you can't change. You can't change. Reinterpret. Change. If it's written Torah. Unless, yeah. unless the written Torah, when it, when it renders the ruling, it has within it the clause that under certain circumstances we could change that. If there is a clause. But this if one there did. is a clause. There is no clause there. What about the follow-up question I threw at you? Process for a non-Jew to become oh, a Oh, by Jew? conversion, Yes. Does that come from written Torah or from, I guess, Mishnah Torah, the, the, the oral actual law? As to the question of conversion, that standard is found in the Talmud. So again, it's very ancient, based upon verses, but it's found in the Talmud. And in fact, even in scripture, there are discussions about insincere converts. You had those groups of people that Joshua made into water carriers and, and wood shoppers, and Moses also had a group of insincere converts that were in limbo because we weren't sure if they were legitimate converts or not. Mm-hmm. But it is definitely brought the Talmud. I believe it's Book of Yavamas, page 46a and b, where it has the bulk of the discussion of how to process would-be converts. How do we determine if they're sincere about it? How do we determine what their motivation is? How do we ensure that they're actually committed? And they're not just in it because they want a job in finance or Hollywood. <laughs> so that, that, that process, again, is not a new one. And it is from the Talmudic era, at least at a minimum. It's brought down the Rambam. It's, it's not something that was invented 200 years ago by a group of steaming Orthodox rabbis. You're saying there's part of the normal Talmudic debate that would always occur. Nobody today goes back and debates or rehashes out debates that were in the Talmud. And if they don't, why not? Why can't they? They were just men back then having debate. Maybe today's Torah scholars have something more to add to that conversation. Well, the law is that you can uproot 
a ruling of an earlier court. It is possible. However, the ruling states that you can only uproot the ruling of a earlier court if you have a later court that is greater in scholarship and in number. So if you have, let's say, 71 great scholars today that are on the level of the scholars of the Talmud, then we could reassess their rulings. Good luck finding those people. And you know what? If you do find those people, those people will readily acknowledge that they're not on the level of the Talmud. And even if they were, they would never even consider to do it. But yes, you're right. Theoretically, if we did get equal, I would say, let's say greater Torah scholars in number and in wisdom, we can theoretically reconsider some of their rulings, but we're not going to find that. All right. Fair enough. Rabbi, I'm not ashamed to admit that if I'm not winning in something, I have no issue at all with walking away. And I know debating you is a futile task. So instead, I want to shift gears. I want to ask you a question that's always on top of my mind and I know on the mind of many Jews that are considering or beginning with their Shabbos observance. As I've been observant to Shabbos over the last four years with with your guidance, once I decided we're going to do this, I've done it. Now, of course, I have read things along the way where I realized I wasn't doing something right, but then I would adapt it. But the question still comes to mind with me and my family. Things like something spills. We need to clean it up and there's not enough light. Maybe it's a, some grape juice that spilled on my wife's nice carpet by the table. You know, the idea of pulling a paper towel apart and breaking that malak or turning on the light switch. We don't do those things, but at the same time, back my mind, we can't help stop thinking like, why is this so important to God? That I don't tear a paper towel. Why are they so important? So I would, I would question your assumption. Your description of the draconian laws of Shabbat are accurate. There are a million and a half things that we cannot do on Shabbat if we want a Shabbat observant. That's true. Amongst them are ripping toilet paper, ripping paper towels, or flipping on light switches. These are the things that you mentioned in your question. But the truth is, you know, that's not even 1%. That's not even a tenth of 1%. There's a, there's a whole bevy of things that we can't do. Our life is very regimented on Shabbat because we're following all the rules. But your assumption that the reason why we're doing it is for God, I would vigorously contest. God doesn't care if we do it or not. It's, it's us. God is telling us, I will give you the perfect prescription of everything you need to do to have the most rewarding and richly and rich life that you could possibly have. And therefore, it's not for him. It's for us. And by the way, when God punishes us, it's also for us. It also makes our life matter. The fact that the Almighty doesn't just discard us and we don't matter, the fact that we get punished is, is a, the greatest sign that he loves us, cares about us, and we do matter. Our life has meaning. But I would maybe answer your question in general by maybe broadening the subject. All of Torah. You asked the question about ripping the paper towels. I could ask the question about everything. Everything that's not harming other people, if it's not killing someone or stealing from someone, why does it matter to God if I do anything? If I study Torah, if I blow the chauffeur on Rosh Hashanah, or shake the lulav, or eat matzah, or have a mezuzah, or wear to fill in, why does that matter? Your question was only the things that are, quote-unquote, insignificant, that don't really, really matter. By that logic, we could say that not why does the tefillin really, really matter? Why does anything really, really matter? You're creating the hierarchy 
that I don't know I don't know why you think one matters more than the other. But put that aside. What I would suggest as a way of framing this this subject so we can understand it is what I would suggest is that we look at it like this. The Jewish nation, what makes us special, what makes us unique, what makes us matter, what makes us the chosen people of God is that we've accepted everything. I mentioned recently in a podcast that I did, the objective of the Jewish people in Egypt is to become total, 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 total complete slaves. Moshe, in last week's parasha, Moses goes to the Jewish people and says, okay, we're going to take you out. And they're so consumed and inundated with work for Pharaoh that they can't even listen to him. And once Moses hears that, then he knows the Jewish people are ready. At that point, where they're total, total slaves of Pharaoh, now the redemption can begin, 10 plagues, Jewish people leaving, and they see Pharaoh being humbled. And what's happening by the Exodus is that now the Jewish people are slaves of Pharaoh, total, total slaves of Pharaoh. Now they could transfer that and become total, total slaves of God. The bargain that we have with the Almighty is that he's going to give us the precise recipe to how to live the most enriching lives, how to bring the world towards its purpose, how to bring the world towards its perfection, how to unlock the tremendous amount of pleasure that the Almighty wants to give us for us, for our families, and for the whole world. That's the bargain. However, in exchange, the Almighty says, listen, you're not going to understand why X leads to Y. You're not going to understand why this precise recipe is going to lead to that particular desired goal. You're going to have to trust me on that. I created you. I created the Torah. I created these as a perfect, the world. I created these things as perfect fits with each other. Follow these instructions to a T and you'll get the desired result. We have to adopt the attitude of total slaves, total unquestioning slaves when God tells us to do something. And we have no idea how this is going to lead ultimately towards the end goal. That was what we accepted at Sinai. We said, okay, we're, we're all in. So yes, in my mind, in your mind, in human intellect, we don't see how taking a red cow that's never been worked and slaughtering it inside the temple, taking it out to the temple, burning it, turning it into a huge mound of ashes, mixing the ashes with other things, sprinkling them against people who became pure, it became impure, coming in contact with dead people, how that is in any way constructive doesn't make any sense to us. And on the Shabbos level, we would say, it doesn't make sense that I am severing my relationship with God by ripping a piece of toilet paper. It doesn't make sense. But the Almighty says, listen, if you follow the rules you'll have the desired outcome. If you don't follow the rules, you're going to cut yourself off from me and you're going to be on your own. And not everything immediately makes sense to our mind because our mind is the equivalent of a uh, mind of an ant compared to a supercomputer. But even that, it's only one millionth of it between us and God. So how do we expect to know the answer to that question? That's the easy answer that I would give you to your question. Why don't we rip toilet paper on Shabbat? Because when we signed up for Sinai, we said the Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, creator of us, creator of the world, is going to give us very precise instructions as to how to achieve our national and personal destiny, and we're going to follow them even if they don't make sense in isolation. That's the easy answer I would give you. The harder answer that I would give you is that the objective of Shabbat, specifically, is that we recognize that we are not creators. We are creatures. We were created by God. God's the only creator, and we are his handiwork. 
And the way we do that is by taking any activity that has within it the illusion of creativity and refraining from, from doing that for a day. And therefore, cutting along a perforated edge or turning on the light, look at the magic of what I could do. I could flip a switch and there's light in the room. Any one of those activities that give off the illusion, the impression that I'm a creator, those we stop doing for a day. And therefore, I will explain you the rationale of that. That's the rationale of that. But I think it's a good, it's a good idea to keep in the back of our pocket of what the bargain that God gives us at Sinai was. And the way we understand it is that he told us he will give us the recipe for achieving the greatest pleasure that a human could possibly achieve, provided that we're willing to follow the rules, even when they don't make sense to us. The idea you gave, being a, a servant to Pharaoh and then going to Mount Sinai and being a servant to God. If someone is a servant to a fellow, another man, and that man is standing and saying, do not rip the paper towel, you're not going to do it. And so just the idea of knowing that this is something that God wants from me, I am his servant, it just brings, I would say, by more tangibility. And maybe that's what he wants for us, is to make his relationship with us and closeness to us something more tangible one day a week on Shabbos. Absolutely. So one of the things I brought up in class, you were out and I had the honor or distinction of, of filling in and teaching for you, was I brought up to the class, I brought up to the class a story you told me about someone that went into a public restroom, they had an automated light, and they got stuck in the bathroom. I, and I told the class this and the, and the response was, really? This is a true story. And then we talked about it afterwards. And of course, this is the exact same thing you would have done. So again, what, what happened was, the person was went to a public restroom. It had a, a light on a timer. When he got in the bathroom, he realized that and knew that he could not go back outside the restroom because it would have triggered the light to turn back on again. So he had to stay in the public restroom until he knew Shabbat was over before he could leave. And I told the class, I think about it all the time. Like, what would I actually do? It's sort of like my test point. Like, okay, if you were in that situation today, what would you do? You know, you know, and four years ago, I'd be like, I would walk out the door. But as time goes on, and I ask myself that on Shabbos, it gets to where I'm like, I think I would stay. But, you know, things the class were bringing up that I would like to get you to think about and see what you would do. But I mean, think about it. You're stuck in a public restroom. It's Shabbos. Meanwhile, Haya and all the kids are getting around for that, that meal you guys have. You often have your students come there. You know, all these people expecting your presence and no one knows where you are. Don't at some point you take into consideration the fact that Haya is going to be worried about you. Maybe you think something, God forbid, happened to you on the way home. Or do you just stay there and say, that's all, that, that's in Hashem's hands? I have a simple rule. I have knowingly violated the Shabbat twice. Once when my son Yehoshua was born on Shabbos in 2009, and once when my daughter Rivka was born this past year, 2019, on Shabbat. My simple rule is like this. If someone's life is in danger, or even potentially in danger, and maybe even if it's a danger of loss of limb, then you violate the Shabbat. And that's the mitzvah. Otherwise, you don't violate the Shabbat. And you know what? That could cause inconvenience. I remember as a kid, when the Mets made the World Series in 2000, in the year 2000, it was pretty frustrating to not know the store on Shabbat. And you have to go kick the, uh, you got to go kick the neighbor's um, newspaper bundle to try to see what the store was. And you got to speak to the mailman, whatever it is. But there are things that you're going to forfeit, but with Shabbat. But my simple rule is, if it's a question of violation of Shabbat, 
the only barometer is, is there a potential loss of life or loss of limb even, depending upon what limb, whatever, then that's not a question. And otherwise, it's also not a question. And also, I'll give you another example. Like, my son Yeshua was born on Shabbos. The bris is on Shabbos. We violated the Shabbat by cutting off uh, his uh, foreskin on Shabbat. And we did it joyously because that's the mitzvah. But it's a simple, it's a simple standard. And the standard is, is universally held. And yeah, there are things that you give up. There are things that you give up. You know, my barber has lots of availability on Saturday, but it's closed on Sunday and Monday. It's kind of frustrating. Got to wait till Tuesday to get a haircut. There's um, the game. We'd love to watch the game. If it's on Saturday, I'm sorry. We can't watch the game. If you uh, live far away from the shul, you want to go to shul, I'm sorry. You got to walk or stay home. But whenever we have a standard and we say, this is just the standard, it's just a universal standard, it becomes the way you live. And you know what? It doesn't bother you. You know, the, the more I've thought about it, to me, like a lot of the questions that were coming up in class were, what about the family members? What about the people that are worried about you? All these variables that we sort of have this illusion that, that we could resolve it, we can control it. And to me, what I'm starting to understand is this is about a relationship with God and putting your trust in God and getting rid of this sense of I'm in control of things that I'm not in control of. So if I was worried about my family at home worrying about me, I would just have, have to have my trust that God would take care of it because I'm doing what he wants me to do, which is being stuck in this locale until Shabbat's over. I mean, so I think some of these situations too, the answer is about having trust in God. Would you agree with that? Definitely. But to the other point of family, I think that nothing is as valuable or productive towards creating family and marital harmony as the Shabbat. So yes, there may be once in a million case where because of the laws of Shabbat, you're going to have to deal with some sort of of a familial conflict, but much, much more often it's going to lead towards familial bliss and harmony. So net net, it's way better for your familial relationships to be to be Shabbat observant. I guarantee that. And moreover, if you're stuck and you know you have this time where you can't get in touch with your your wife because you're stuck in the bathroom, the fact that everyone's aware of Shabbat and the fact that there's certain expectations of of behavior that will help soften the blow. She'll be more understanding, and it's also it will constrict your Shabbat observance does constrict your ability to go to exotic places. So the likelihood of you being in an unfamiliar bathroom is fairly small. <laughs> it, it would never happen out here for sure. Rabbi, I had such a great time doing this with you and I, and I hope we can do it again. I am already looking forward towards the next, the next episode we got to talk and it was an absolute joy. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Rabbi. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting Torch so they can continue to spread Torah wisdom to the world by making a donation at torchweb.org and clicking Donate in the top right corner of the page. And if you would like to get in contact with our host with comments, suggestions for future topics of learning, or questions for him or his guest rabbis, you may email him at president at torchweb.org.